you know, in a way, perhaps more fundamental than any uh, of the details of what I'm talking about or <coughs> elements of the fabric, uh, of the structure of what we're trying to uh, communicate and convey. Um, in a way more fundamental than all that is this uh, encouragement, um, permission, encouragement, even request uh, to inquire for yourself, to experiment, to play, let yourself play, let yourself ask questions, let yourself turn over stones and see what's un- underneath. Let yourself uh, find out, interrogate. So the permission, <clears throat> the encouragement, and yeah, even the uh, request to inquire. And a part of inquiry is becoming aware of what our assumptions are and questioning those assumptions as part of inquiry. Inquiry is, or at least it can be, inquiry can be very much a a movement of soul-making, part of soul-making. I would say the other way around, soul-making always involves some inquiry, I would say, because of this expansion of the the logos in the Eurosyche logos. And inquiry can be soul maker. So there's this encouragement, almost <clears throat> said more fundamental than any of the details or the little insights or that this or that practice or whatever. More general, more fundamental is this uh, this this need really for inquiry and this permission and encouragement to to inquire. So in the practice that we described in the in the first part of this talk. Um, what we're calling the opening to the deeper current of desire, uh, that practice, uh, you could see, I hope, and hear there how through that practice, in in doing that, it will almost, I, I think, almost certainly uh, question or overturn uh, certain assumptions um, if, if those assumptions are in place. For example, that desire that is not for ending suffering or a desire that is just for uh, that is not just for metta or for jhana or whatever that uh, such desires that are not so sort of narrowly conceived as kind of path desires um, the assumption that desire the other desires are defilements and lead to dukkha uh, that through such a practice there's um, almost almost inevitably through engaging such a practice uh, it should it should upturn um, uproot such assumptions question them bring one face to face with them and their questioning or the uh, that uh, the assumption that desire is always from something called the self um, and it uh, leads to selfing it uh, builds this a uh, bad thing called the self. There's a uh, again looking at such desires and feeling where they come from and what they do uh, when we relate to them in certain ways should uh, confront us with uh, uh, 
these assumptions and ho hopefully bring more sophistication, more nuance, more depth of insight, breadth of insight into <coughs> into um, our whole understanding relationship with desire. So we talked about this opening to the deeper current of desire, that practice, and and by now through this course, you know, uh, we could say there are m many. Uh, if you like, um, uncommon observations or not commonly reported or talked about or chronicled or uh, systematized um, broadcast observations uh, in relationship to desire uh, and what desire is and does and can be, etc. and all that. Uh, observations that are contrary to the usual assumptions and conclusions at least in our kind of uh, subculture. <clears throat> so we have quite a whole host um, of, of these observations that don't fit, if you like, in the usual logos and set of assumptions and conclusions. And uh, so, for example, um, we have talked about kind of reviewing now um, the delineating uh, eros from craving, saying desire is a, a large subset and we can delineate something, a kind of desire called eros and a kind of desire called craving if we use language in a certain way and define them. And we're saying these are not equivalent, uh, interchangeable words. Eros is not craving and the imaginal is not papancha. So the erotic imaginal is a very different thing than the contracting and proliferating and crazy-making movement of um, uh, craving and papancha. <clears throat> and we, for example, uh, shared that, you know, if one is involved in one's life, perhaps with uh, some other who is unavailable for whatever reasons, either because of the boundaries or because they're already involved with someone else or they're just not interested or or they're, they're just unavailable, or health, or wh whatever it is. Um, and one feels um, uh, the contraction of dukkha stuck, uh, the contraction of craving, one is looping in a circle, one is uh, feels the pain of that, that contrary to usual instructions, uh, just let go, etc., um, let go of that person, let go of what uh, the, the craving, let go of the uh, attachment there. Uh, one possibility is actually to uh, allow more of the imaginal uh, uh, element in, of, of the imaginal realm, allow the imaginal to open up um, in the seeing of the other and open up the whole constellation. So everything that goes with that, the sense of beauty, the sense of meaningfulness, the sense of necessity, depth, dimensionality, especially the dimensionality that comes with the imaginal. So that this other that I um, uh, seem to be so in, uh, stuck with and frustrated by not being able to have, actually they become more through the allowing of the erotic imaginal, through seeing and sensing in that way, they, they become, uh, if you like, um, expanded imaginally. They become uh, more, they're 
they become more angel, if you like, if we use that word in its in its uh, imaginal sense. Uh, their angelic function becomes more apparent to our erotic gaze, to our imaginal sensing, and also then, and related to that, their divinity. So opening, actually, rather than turning away and trying to close down or just avoid this person or shut down the desire or contemplate uh, their foul uh, body parts, etc. Um, another possibility, and, and yes, it's not easy, perhaps, at first, and it's certainly unusual, but with practice, absolutely possible, absolutely possible, to enter more into the imaginal the imaginal vision, the imaginal sensing of this person. Um, that ex- The expansion that they then go through, the perception of this other, the filling, uh, the filling out and, and the expansion, widening, deepening, complicating of this imaginal object that they are, also brings with it, rather than more problem, it, it becomes more obvious. It brings with it the evidentness, the self-evidence that this is image. So rather than getting stuck in a kind of concretization and a realism, as we let the imaginal kind of inflate, give dimensionality, give give extra beauty, give an angelism, an angelic function, a divinity to this person, all of that, um, it's obvious that we're dealing with image. And the mindfulness is there, and the energy body, and the attuning to resonances, etc. Um, and that takes, uh, because it punctures the realism, it it takes the problem out of it, and it's no longer craving. It 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 uh, uh, steers craving towards eros more. So letting the psyche the uh, image expand and deepen so that it's uh, this object, this beloved other, this person that I feel I'm infatuated with or frustrated by or whatever, they're obviously m- more than just what they seem. And it's obviously imaginal. When we get stuck in craving, even despite the puncture, we, we tend to, there, there's the realism there, we said this before, and actually the object is limited. It's limited, it's capped. Even if there's proliferation, it's capped. The the, uh, extension of the object goes into fantasizing about the future and this and that and uh, whatever, uh, rather than expanding the dimensionality of the object and of the self. So I'm just repeating now, um, reviewing (coughs) insights that uh, that are unusual, uncommon, that we've kind of unearthed here. And that in allowing the eros, and allowing the feeling of the eros, uh, sometimes, often, that actually um, brings a, an equanimity in the experience of the eros and a spaciousness. At the same time as there is um, eros and soul. So it's not an equanimity devoid of eros. It's not a Equanimity and spaciousness devoid of soul, or or at least with only very limited soul-making. Allowing the Eros, we've given examples of this, but actually allowing the Eros, trusting it, trusting the erotic imaginal, and there can be peace there, 
even if I, I'm not able to have this person for whatever reason in the way that I uh, think that I want them, if that's the situation. But there can be peace here, not from so much a, a, a letting go, turning away, avoiding, repressing, whatever, deciding to see them as uh, ugly or stupid or unworthy or whatever. But in, in the very opening more to the eros and the imaginal, we can have a sense of peace because we, we somehow all, we have more. We have more through the image, in the image, with the image. I'm not talking about daydream. I don't have to repeat all this now. But there's, uh, in the increase and the allowing of the imaginal and the erotic in relationship to this other, with whom I've been contracted and craving and stuck, etc., there can be equanimity, spaciousness, with eros and with soul and, and also peace, peace there. So, just let go, uh, which is sometimes so simplistically offered as a teaching recommendation, uh, is, is certainly an option and uh, it's a good possibility sometimes, but it may come at a cost. What's the cost? What am I losing there? in terms of eros and soul. It's an option though, absolutely, and, and it's something that uh, you know we can cultivate that ability, as, 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 uh, and that capacity, and that skill in letting go, in that sense. But it's not the only option. And wrapped up in that option of just let go, it's assuming all kinds of things, and one of the things it's assuming is a realism. This real self is letting go of that real object. So one can contemplate the emptiness of things, but there's uh, of self and object. But there's also this other way of actually recognizing who this person is to my psyche, letting the psyche uh, create and discover the depths and, and the fuller beauty uh, of this imaginal other. So yes, um, maybe that sounds dangerous, maybe it sounds crazy, um, but absolutely possible, uh, and doesn't, doesn't really take uh, that much uh, development of practice to be able to do that. You know, we talked about fantasies of the path and self on the path, etc. And one of the pieces of that that I mentioned a couple of times uh, in that whole constellation was the fantasy of the teacher, or fantasy of others on the path, and let's say the teacher. And you know, as with working with a therapist or working with a teacher in any um, area or, or uh, domain of education that, that one loves and one cares about, there can be the, the fantasy of the teacher and the eros in relationship with the teacher. You know, this is, this is really quite common. I'm sure many of you are aware of this. And at the same time, there's the boundary. Most, most often there's the boundary there uh, between teacher and student and uh, the 
you know, it's not just a relationship where one enters into this or that and decides to do this or that and consummate sexually or just be friends or whatever. So, oftentimes, again, the encouragement is let go or just stop doing that. Uh, either that teacher says to the student or someone else to you know drop it um, don't uh, you know think of something else find someone else to, you know uh, or it's conceived in a sort of um, either very classical psychoanalytic uh, model of the Oedipal uh, triangle or situation I want my uh, I want this uh, mummy or daddy or whatever and then it's related to that way it's a projection based in the past and it needs a kind of healthy walking through together the disappointment and the, and the kind of firm, uh, keeping the boundaries firm and just walking through that disappointment there. Uh, um, fine, you know, fine. Um, but there are also sometimes, again, in that kind of approach, another... <laughs> other possibilities, other dimensions of possibility actually missed. So, um, you know, like, I'm sure like any any other teacher, I've been on the receiving end of that, uh, or, or that, that's a strange way to say it, isn't it? I've been, that has arisen, um, uh, or students have expressed that from time to time towards me, completely what I would expect when a person loves the path, and, and, and there's um, there's beauty in that relationship, in the teacher-student relationship, and there's the fertility of the soul making. It's going to get uh, the the eros is going to involve, um, in this case, the teacher, and uh, and okay, as that's part of the constellation. So I know that's not that's not. I don't take that if it happens or when it happens. I don't take that. Um, in some way that's going to puff up my ego or something. It's not me as real. It's not that it has nothing to do with me, of course, nothing to do with what I teach or whatever. But I I can't take it about me. It's about the soul. It's about soul-making. It's about the erotic movement of the soul and the erotic imaginal there. Um, And if I... If a person or, or, or is told, you know, just absolutely stop it, you know, just turn it off, etc. Or if it's only, only kind of reduced or shrunk into that kind of Oedipal paradigm or variations of the Oedipal paradigm that are common in the uh, in modern psychotherapeutic circles. If it's only, I'm not saying that's not uh, sometimes um, an, uh, an important element to address, but if it's only that, something else gets mi- missed. You know, someone wrote to me uh, a while ago and, um, and, and you know, I, I realized the uh, risks I'm even taking in, in sharing this and the danger of how people hear it and what they then assume, etc. Um, so I'm not talking about the, um, anything that involves uh, the boundary not being there and being very clear. Um, it, it absolutely was there, and, and neither 
Am I talking about something that I took personally or um, got off on in, in some way at all? So I hope you can really hear that and trust that and understand that we're talking now about something that's a little bit more sophisticated than probably um, a lot of too easy um, assumptions and um, explanations, etc. about the people involved or about what's going on. And the person wrote, um, after some time, uh, you and your teachings have never been just a teacher and teachings for me. You've been a key that's unlocked the whole cosmos and let it out of a box. So this is this person then actually realizing after some time uh, what actually was happening in that movement of Eros and the fantasy of the teacher, etc., in this case, there's an erotic image, there's an erotic beloved other, and soul-making is was allowed through that image, because she didn't just um, stamp on it and turn it off, and she didn't just reduce it to, it's about daddy and wanting daddy, etc. Um, so the soul-making was allowed through an erotic image, <clears throat> and when she said, a key that's unlocked the whole cosmos and let it out of a box, in a way she literally meant that, because, as we've been talking about, allowing the eros and the erotic imaginal opened up the cosmopoesis. And the whole <clears throat> uh, realm of the imaginal perception of herself, of others, of the world, all this soul-making and cosmopoesis, uh, cosmopoetic sensibility was opened through... Uh, Yes, through the teachings, but also through, uh, in this case, it doesn't have to be like this, but also through the uh, allowing of the erotic other and allowing of the eros there. And she says, falling in love with you was falling in love with an entire world. No wonder it felt so big. <coughs> you understand? And, um, and she also says something... So it feels so big because it literally is big. It's a, it's a whole world. It's a whole world that's opening up in cosmopoesis. That's actually what she's falling in love with. It's not me. It's not me, this person, etc., that I should then take personally and feel like, wow, aren't I this or that or attractive or anything like that. It's actually falling in love with an entire world. What world? The world of soul-making and the world seen and, and sensed through the the, uh, the 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 through the soul, if you like, <clears throat> through the eyes of the soul, the sensibilities of the soul. And she continues, I think, and I think I needed to borrow your soul for a while while my own was just waking up. So the attraction, excuse me, the attraction, the eros and the love is for the soul making. We could say psyche is in love with itself. Um, eros is sparked by the glimpse of psyche's own treasures. So she, you might see in someone else uh, the treasures that are they belong to psyche. They belong to you, not 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 just the other person. Um, uh, psyche is sparked by a glimpse of its own a vision if you like, of, it, of its own possibilities of deepening, widening, being enriched, all that. Do you understand? Psyche is in love with itself. The Eros is really 
uh, the eros of the soul, the eros of psyche, is for soul, for psyche. Psyche is in love with itself, it's in love with its own growth. Soul loves soul-making. Soul wants soul-making. And when something happens uh, with a person and there's that er erotic connection there, often what's happening is they, they, or the relationship, or something in the relationship, or the totality of that constellation is feeding soul-making. And at first sight, it can seem like it's them. I want them. I need them in a certain form or mode of relating or whatever it is. Sometimes it may be that, that, that that's uh, uh, allowed for in the circumstances and it's the right thing and lovely, you know, whatever. But oftentimes it's not really about that. We make the mistake. It's really about the soul making. And we, 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 we love it and we sense it and the soul longs for it. And you know, she's, she's honest here and says, and of course the immature enchantment got mixed in there too. Maybe if you'd been an 80-year-old wrinkly sage, it wouldn't have. But I'm glad that part has been ebbing, a soul has taken hold. So there was this process over time of kind of going back, there's soul-making, but it veers into craving and a contraction, I want this, or a very particular form or whatever. But the boundary, the agreement that the relationship has only this range and not uh, a larger range extending itself to manifest in <clears throat> this way or that way or sexually or as friends or, or whatever in the, in the usual sense of the word. That agreement functions as a boundary and the boundary creates uh, a kind of container uh, it functions uh, to create kind of walls, if you like, that um, m manifest a, the potential, the potential for an alchemical vessel. In other words, that container can become, if it's related to in the right way, can become a kind of alchemical vessel. And that the fire of Eros heats up the soul material in that vessel, the contents of the vessel, and there is the alchemical process, the soul-making process that is allowed by the vessel and the fire and, and the, the imaginal uh, perceptions. So that container is not to contain the uh, feelings, if you like, so that uh, one can feel the original disappointment with one's parents, etc., in the more sort of um, standard psychotherapeutic models. Um, that, that may be a part of it, as, as we've acknowledged, but principally it's, it's an alchemical vessel, a soul-making container, in potential. still need to... Uh, uh, have the art of alchemy, relate to it right, etc. Protect that vessel, watch the fire, uh, work on the contents, on the images, etc. So the walls there, note this too, are not walls or barriers or blocks to image, nor to logos, nor to eros. The Eros, Psyche, Logos, none, none of that uh, 
no, no aspect of that trinity um, is walled off or blocked or limited or cramped. It's the boundary that creates uh, the agreement, that creates uh, limits of action and actual manifestation. Of course there's going to be friendship there, deep friendship, but it's limited in terms of uh, how it manifests. Um, and that boundary, uh, not walls of psyche, logos, or eros, but that boundary allows what we called before a temenos, another Greek word, which I translated as sacred space, better to translate it as, uh, in this case, as a space that um, allows the making sacred. A space, temenos, is a space that allows sacralizing allows the um, alchemical process to transubstantiate the material into uh, divine material, sacred material, soul material. So terminos, a boundary, creates uh, a space of potential. May or may not realize that potential of soul, um, soul making. And how does it do that? This goes back to what we said much earlier on the retreat. How does it do that? Because the more that's desired in the Eros, the pothos in the Eros, cannot, it cannot pursue or look for that more at a certain point. Uh, it, it realizes it cannot, it will not get its more on the, on the level of one-dimensionality and the level of more contact or sexual contact or um, hanging out or whatever it is. So the only way it can get more is it's it's if you like uh, forced if you like uh, is maybe too strong a word but it's contained in this alchemical. So the only way it can get more is is in the imaginal. Only or principally, let's say, the imaginal is the direction and space made available and offered. Uh, so uh, for the movement of eros and the more of the pothos, the more that it wants. So this is the available space. This is the sort of uh, the, the fire of the eros, and the material is directed, if you like, in in into the realm of psyche, of soul, of the imaginal. And there's in the discovering of the fullness of the imaginal, more and more fullness of the imaginal, the creation of that, the discovery, creation of that. There is soul making, and because. Self, too, we've touched on this, will be wrapped up or involved in that uh, constellation, soul-making constellation. It's not just about the other, about the teacher, about the therapist or whatever. Self, other, world, eros itself. The whole, the whole constellation will be involved there and is uh, supported to, uh, to heat up and, uh, and have that soul-making process. And the soul-making is allowed to kind of deepen and widen until it's seen for what it is. And it's not that object that I want, that person in that form. I actually want something uh, more than that, deeper than that. Yes, in some instances I will get that through a certain form of relationship and that's all fine if it's okay. But actually the soul is after something else. Hungry, thirsty, 
for something else. So then that, as you said, it just, that, that part of it ebbed away. Uh, and there's still strong love, she writes, but it's very different now. It's eros and love and care minus the craving. The craving has been drained out of it. So that whole process um, al- allowed uh, or gave ri- was allowed to uh, give rise to soul making more and more wider and deeper and complicated, beautiful p- process of soul making over some time and peace supported by the temenos or the alchemical vessel provided by the boundaries and provided by the teachings and provided by a certain way of relating to the whole thing ways of relating to the whole thing <clears throat> so all this still talking about assumptions now and opening up assumptions and inquiry, etc. Do we trust Eros? Do we trust the imaginal? Do we trust the erotic imaginal? Do we understand Eros? Are we, is, or put it another way because we said it's impossible to finally answer it, is, is there an expanding of our understanding of Eros? Are we moving in that direction or have we just decided something? And we stop looking. Do we trust the movement of soul making and the intelligence that might be uh, propelling that movement of soul making? Can we trust that? Sometimes what happens is uh, there's a sort of partial trust of the eros in one direction but not in another so for example in that polarity we've talked about between the <clears throat> unfabricated on one hand some people with a longing and a desire and eros uh, t- towards the unfabricated if you like and uh, they might look such people might look with distrust and suspicion and disrespect at people whose eros seems to be for the world and for the senses and for others. And vice versa. The people whose eros seems to be, uh, or, or they feel it, it's directed to, to this world and the senses and beauty here and other human beings, etc. Look uh, with uh, perplexity or suspicion of kind of some kind of psychological wounding or something at at those whose eros wants the unfabricated and maybe has chosen to leave aside the the world and the senses and and the kind of um, uh, erotic engagement there for the sake of the erotic movement towards the unfabricated. So these two camps of directions are often so suspicious of each other. This gets... uh, so hot uh, and polemical philosophically within the Dharma as well. Uh, This is assuming one even allows Eros, but um, such opposition is assumed between the, the, if you like, the transcendent or spirit or the unfabricated on one hand and the imminent or matter or the senses or things on the other hand. 
but that opposition um, <coughs> in terms of inclination or philosophic, philosophically or whatever can only really hold if there's realism on the basis of realism can only really hold this opposition this this um, dichotomy tug of war mutual suspicion only if there's realism uh, if we don't understand or see the emptiness of both emptiness of the world the emptiness of sense perception and the emptiness of the unfabricated only if there's realism or another another uh, possibility was is we've gone beyond the realism because we've um, explored the eros enough in both movements we've explored eros enough to understand that whole movement of uh, rendering things allowing their imaginal nature to open up seeing images image and perhaps we've explored both directions There's this opposition uh, between, say, the transcendent, the unfabricated, and the world or matters. It's apparent opposition. <clears throat> we need to account, as I said, in our in our logos. We can't. I feel you can't really ignore this um, phenomenological observation that when clinging is reduced. Uh, to that extent, there's a decrease in the fabrication of the perception of self, other, and world. Uh, somehow I need to account for that. I can, based on certain epistemological assumptions, decide to ignore it, but to, to me it's something that somehow we need to account for, especially as meditators. Um, <clears throat> so we need to account for it, but... It also seems to me to be the case that if Eros is strong, if there is a strong and deep and powerful Eros running through a person, and if there's a, a Logos or an intelligence that allows uh, an expansion and, and an understanding, and also if we've been exposed to uh, a concept or the idea of, of the unfabricated or the transcendent, or if an intuition of it or the possibility of it has emerged somehow in consciousness, uh, a glimpse, an intimation of it, either in meditation or through a certain direction of inquiry meditation, perhaps around fabrication, um, or as one moves about in the world, and there's the the said the, the perhaps the veiled sense of it, the glimpse of it, it's there as an intuition of a possibility. Then the eros will actually eventually go in both directions. There will be eros for the transcendent if we've been exposed to the idea, probably. Um, if there's uh, a certain amount of intelligence and a certain amount of a logos that can hold such a concept, even if we don't quite understand it yet. And if the eros is strong, 
then the Eros will go towards the, the transcendent at some point. It will actually go in both directions. We've said this before. But the, the desire for mystic knowing uh, and the desire for the unfabricated, to me, they, when they are there, they are signals, almost always, they are signals of uh, a rich, deep, um, powerful Eros in a person. People with um, less eros tend not to want to know the transcendent, the unfabricated. That very desire uh, uh, indicates a deep, powerful longing, a deep, powerful uh, movement of eros. And it's 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 really it's funny. Um, several people have reported to me that. Um, in their uh, people other people look at them and maybe they know them relatively well or maybe less well and they see someone who has this uh, mystical inclination and who has a desire to know the unfabricated and they assume that uh, because they want that because there is this eros in that direction, that movement towards the unfabricated, <coughs> and and the, the the mystical sensibility, and they assume that they're therefore not interested in close relationship, in in erotic uh, or sexual relationships. A strange assumption, based on this uh, opposition, this dichotomy. Actually, it's, it's probably the opposite that is the case. That a person, as I said, who longs for the unfabricated, who moves in that direction, who makes inquiries and practices in that direction and wants to know and wants to open, wants these other levels of perception that we could call mystical, <clears throat> usually that person has a lot of eros and, and also has uh, a, a lot of eros in human relationships. And sometimes in, in the uh, and in the uh, sort of purely intrapsychic imaginal. Sometimes there are assumptions uh, made by those um, without so much eros running through them. They make assumptions about other people in a way they don't understand because there's just they don't know because they're basing their view on just how much eros they have. Or uh, there's actually an anti-libidinal kind of fear that we talked about that uh, they're making their assumptions based on. This fear of allowing eros. Not just that they don't have it, they might have it, but they're, uh, they might be dampening it. And so the, their, their eros is dampened or only channeling in, in channeled or allowed in, in a few limited directions because of this anti-libidinal fear of disappointment, rejection, whatever it is. And based on that view, the view that comes from that limited eros, they're uh, reading other people and making assumptions about other people and what's going on for them or what they're like. So 
so there's there can be so much um it's so easy again just on the theme of this part of the talk it's, it's so easy to not not let our questioning loose if you like or not to not to gather power in our questioning questioning is related to eros can you use this penetrating if we use that image or it's opening so sometimes the questioning is actually driven by eros and again people with a with a sort of um, sometimes people who, who who keep questioning it's actually uh, it, it it's also indicative of of the movement of eros of the fullness the depth the force the power the richness of the eros there <clears throat> But with all this, we see, uh, you know, just how, how how easy it is for assumptions to be operating without us even realizing. And these assumptions wield a lot of power, and they have a lot of effects. They they really affect um, how we view things, how we view others, how we view self, how we view existence, and then what unfolds for us. All kinds of assumptions. So we mentioned, uh, just as an example, we mentioned just the assumption that um, desire always comes from lack, from a feeling of lack. Does it? Does it? Can I, do I dare question this? Um, it's possible, uh, I would say it's possible for desire to come out of joy, out of a sense of celebration, out of a, a sense of abundance, overabundance even superabundance. Somehow the desire flows out of that. Again, this word flow related to libido. There's an overflowing of the libido that manifests as desire. And sometimes at another level, and we've already said this as well, um, there's, there's, there's a recognition that desire is somehow already flowing from me to you on the imaginal level, like the, in the imaginal realm, so to speak. It's already flowing. It's not coming out of lack, it's already there. In some fullness. So, I think before, at some point, uh, in one of the earlier talks, we said, I'm pretty sure we said, you know, desire may be viewed in different ways. We can view it as really not okay. It's a defilement. Um, or even if we don't use such strong language as defilement or kilesa, uh, we somehow um, anticipate or imagine that in awakening there's going to be somehow zero desire and we're just kind of going along with the flow without really wanting anything or desiring anything. But somehow the whole movement is away from desire. Desire is, desire is a sign of non-awakening, if you like. Um, or we might have a view that um, desire is, well, it's okay, it's okay. Um, it's kind of, everything's okay. Everything's all equal, it's all one, it's all uh, whatever it is. No problem. Um, there can be that kind of view of desire. Or there might be uh, a more nuanced view of only some desires are okay. So the desire, for example, uh, and, and you know, pick your, pick your, uh, directions where it's okay. For the Buddha, the desire for jhana was certainly okay. The desire to cultivate the Brahmaharas was certainly okay. The desire for awakening was certainly okay. The desire to live an ethical life 
all that, okay, the desire to ordain into the monastic order. Some desires are okay, depending on what they're for, where they're headed, and others are not. Or we may have the view, the, the, the view that uh, desire is okay if it's only a momentary arising. In other words, you get a pop-up of something called desire or craving or whatever, and as long as the mind doesn't cling to it and attach to that desire, get caught by it, and, and dragged along with it, um, even just in the mind, then it's okay, it's just a momentary arising. That would be a, another fourth view, or a fifth view, that, uh, that desire is something uh, divine. There's a treasure there, a divine treasure of great beauty there. can't quite remember if I've said this before, uh, on this retreat so far, or, or even on another retreat, so forgive me if it's a repeat, but our word desire, uh, some of you will know this, I heard this first from Rosanna who shared it with me, pointed it out, our word desire in English comes from the Latin word desiderare, desiderare, which is from de sidera, which means from the stars, in other words, from the heavenly realms. Uh, from the gods, if you like, uh, as the stellar constellations were uh, seen, regarded as gods, as divine. So right there in the word, in our English word desire, it bears the um, etymological origin uh, in, in the very word of a regard uh, for it that was that regarded as divine in that way. So we could just, I'm uh, just repeating what we said before, uh, we could say there are five ways that desire may be viewed in. But actually, uh, maybe even more discernment is needed than that, more nuance to our uh, uh, views of desire. And if I haven't said it already, hope I have, um, but the conception I have of desire and the evaluation of desire, it isn't okay, it's a defilement, only some is okay, etc., etc., that, the conception and the evaluation of desire actually plays a role in then what the desire does or um, what happens to it or what un what unfolds. It's not a neutral a neutral factor is part of the dependent arising of the desire itself. Same with anything, in fact. But the conception, the evaluation of desire plays a creative part, plays a, a, a role in fabrication. <clears throat> and actually, there's always some conception and view of desire. I mean, sometimes it might be quite elaborate and involved, especially if you've had a lot of teaching and, and, and dharma training, and you know, desires is quite a loaded central subject. But even uh, if, if not, there's always some conception and view of desire. And there's always, uh, I'm just reviewing a few things before moving on, um, there's always, uh, I think I said, an imagined or an assumed relationship with getting the object that we desire. 
so for example, um, there's here's this desire, and I anticipate getting what I want. Something really simple, or something uh, not simple. If it's really simple, like I, I, I'm, I'm thirsty, so I want some water, so I go to the tap. But I anticipate getting it. I don't anticipate a drought, or uh, certainly not in, in Devon, anyway. Um, well, I, you know, I don't anticipate not being able to find clean water because of, you know, because one of the good things about our society is it provides clean water. Uh, but that's a certain, uh, that's part of what comes into the whole relationship of desire. And it's often overlooked, because it's very different when I, when I have a desire and I anticipate not getting it. Not getting the thing I want. And how does that color and shape the whole experience and the very desire itself? Or then there's this other possibility of, as we said, um, realizing or sensing that on an imaginal level, uh, I, there already is what I desire. Or what I desire is already here. And that actually then means there's an, a relationship with eros there and the imaginal. So there's, in, 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 uh, relationship with the, the anticipated getting or not getting or realizing it's already here on another level in the imaginal realm uh, that we're talking about them very different things and there's always going to be some view in in uh, about or relative to this getting or not getting or whatever the object so that last one the <coughs> um, sense of it already being here as I said it, it, that already involves the imaginal um, again, just reviewing a little bit, uh, with uh, desire with the imaginal, or desire that's become eros, then has all kinds of possibilities. And we went through um, some ways of looking, practices, really, practices, uh, practicing uh, ways of looking that transformed a desire to eros and allowed more equanimity or spaciousness or soul-making beauty, etc., um, so, for example, I think there were there were four we touched on. Uh, one was seeing one's desire. Here's this desire. It feels problematic. Maybe I can't have that what, that which I want. But seeing the desire as a divine influx. Its origins are in the divine, or in the primordial Buddha, whatever. Uh, what does that then do to the experience? What does it do to the desire? What does it do to the sense of the situation? What does it do to any dukkha that might be there? Uh, or, uh, as we mentioned uh, just just now, the second one might be um, recognizing, with the imaginal sensibility, recognizing that that which I am desiring and that which I feel a problem in relationship to desiring, because it seem, seems like I can't have it, recognizing through the imaginal sensibility, through the attunement, through the opening of the imaginal lens, recognizing that it's already happening in what we call hierophanic time, borrowing <coughs> Henri Corbin's phrase. It's already happening. And again, what then does that do to the dukkha? What does that do to the desire? 
What does it do to the whole sense of the situation? Whole perception. And a third possibility uh, we mentioned was seeing again um, with practice this facility and skill and dexterity with the uh, perception, the ways of looking uh, uh, in, in the imaginal perception. It, it, it can be developed quite extraordinary, quite to extraordinary degrees. So just decide to see the desire the other, the object, the, the beloved other that one is desiring, and the self, uh, as theophanies, as faces or aspects of the divine. This is slightly different from the first one. The first one was that the desire originated in the, in, in, in the divine or in the Buddha nature or whatever. So it's a divine influx, the desire. This is not so much that, but the desire itself is divine, is divinity. It is God. It is the primordial Buddha. Or an aspect of the primordial Buddha. Or an aspect of the divine. And a fourth possibility we, we uh, offered was um, seeing, sensing, viewing, practicing a way of looking uh, that uh, sees the image of the other, the image of the desired object, the image of the self-desiring, and the desire itself, all three, as the primordial Buddha making love to herself, making love to himself, God making love to her or himself. So there's this, with practice, with him, and some of you, um, if you're hearing this before, you've done a lot of practice work might be how am I ever going to be able to do something like that but actually again it's it's not it's absolutely not impossible uh, and it's it's not as far away as it might sound at first if you haven't really uh, got in and played with um, imaginal practice but basically we can play with the views of desire of the self and of the object desired or the other um, and and develop that art is different than these ones we're talking about here are different than seeing uh, the desire is not self whatever anatta it's actually different views there and develop those skills and that that art really it's really the, again the art of perception and how um, <clears throat> Extraordinary are the possibilities, diverse and beautiful are the possibilities waiting for us to discover there. So all that, um, when we, uh, uh, what we've already outlined, when, when we include the imaginal in our relationship with desire, we allow the imaginal to come in to that relationship and infuse it and amplify it and extend it and complicate it. And then we can also talk about, and we have already talked a little bit about, oh, what about the energy of desire? We've talked about this in different ways. So we can um, change the relationship with desire, or change what the desire actually is and does, um, through the way we relate to the energy of the desire as it manifests in the body. And sometimes this is clearest when it's sexual energy and sexual um, uh, uh, energy that is kind of 
feels problematic because it can't be moved or released because of the situation or whatever it is. And there can be a pressure that accumulates in um, areas of the body, oftentimes in, in the genitals or whatever. And sometimes it can be really, you know, uncomfortable, painful, difficult to difficult to bear, difficult to handle. You know, a very normal human experience. Uh, and so one of the possibilities we talked about was just expanding the awareness, making sure you stretch it so that the whole body, the whole energy body, is is encompassed in the awareness, is filled out by the awareness. Sometimes what happens is I just need to stretch the awareness and the energy starts spreading more. Something's happened in, in the uncomfortableness, the energy, in the contraction around the object desired, etc., or the um, imagination of that, and the whole thing's got contracted, and the energy itself has also got contracted, and that's part of pressure, right? Pressure and contraction go together. Where gas is contracted, it's under higher pressure, and that pressure is uncomfortable. But just sometimes, I don't even need to try moving the energy around, although that's a certain way of doing it, but in a way, a, a more subtle and even more refined way of doing it, uh, both are possible, is just to spread the awareness. And because the awareness has more space, the energy will also spread to fill that space. And because it spreads, it's, it's less contracted, there's less pressure. And sometimes what can also happen in that movement, in allowing the energy to move because it has more space, because the awareness is giving it more space, uh, is that the pressured, uncomfortable sexual energy actually turns to, to bliss, to something like PT or rapture. And there's a second possibility, just just like to offer as well. And this, this, if there's a similar kind of situation, the uncomfortable pressure of sexual energy gathered in one area in the body is, um, say, the genitals, is to be aware at the same time of the heart center in the center of the chest, and uh, aware of both regions at the same time, the heart center and let's say the, the genitals where the pressure feels gathered uncomfortably. And just being aware of both uh, will, it kind of al- allows the energy, I don't have to, again, I don't have to move the energy or make it do anything or kind of yank it around or uh, all of which is fine too, but this is all, sometimes all you need to do is just be aware of the heart center as well, not instead not saying, oh, go away from the genital area, etc. In- include both. And it's almost as if there's a channel then uh, made between the heart and the genitals, that, that area of pressure. And one's including both. And naturally, naturally, what will usually happen is, is the um, energy will begin moving up that channel and into the heart. So then it's um, spread between the heart and the genitals. So what you then have is it, it stimulates the heart or it re-invites the heart back in to the, um, to the energetic uh, experience and the emotional experience. So it actually allows more love and warmth and connection with the other that one might be desiring, etc., so you've got the heart as well as the genitals. Um, and, and in that spreading and in that softening with the love and warmth, the, the, it doesn't take the sexual energy away or dampen it or get rid of it or 
uh, anything like that, but it allows it to spread and include another dimension, in this case the heart dimension, uh, so that it's less pressured and less uncomfortable. But all this, <clears throat> so that's just a, a little suggestion offering if that if that's sometimes the case right? if, if that experience arises and it's difficult but but the main point right now is that uh, like anything else like images like actually any any perception um, any desire is dependent on how it is looked at it's dependent on uh, the way of looking what we're calling the way of looking, and if you remember, the way of looking includes the way of conceiving and the way of relating to it. So any desire is what it is, how it is, how it's felt, what happens to it, all that depends on how it is looked at, the way of looking, which includes the way of conceiving of it and evaluating it, and also the way of relating to it. So desire, if we're talking about desire, uh, whatever name we give to it, um, we've chosen certain uh, to use certain labels, etc. But whatever name, if we talk about desire, whatever name we give to it, it's not good or bad um, in itself, so to speak. Um, and neither its nature nor its trustworthiness of desire is determined by its obvious object. Neither its nature nor its trustworthiness is determined by its obvious object. In other words, that's a sense desire, therefore it's a kilesa. Um, that's a desire for awakening or compassion, therefore it's positive. It's not so much um, as we would usually tend to think in, in with Dharma teaching uh, that it's this is a desire to trust, this is a desire not to trust. Dependent on what it seems to be for. Right? Because we've gone into this, what is the desire for, in a number of different ways. Whether imaginally, uh, actually allowing the imaginal amplification, dimen dimension, uh, dimensionality to open up through the imaginal of this obvious object, or through asking the deeper question of what is what it, what what is being desired. And sometimes we um, think about this desire or that desire uh, as and imagine that it's a thing in itself, but we get confused because we're kind of implicitly including the idea of acting on it or following through on the desire. Uh, physically or practically in the world. So when we go into all this, or just this question of like even even the um, e even the impulse to inquire into desire, we start to realize, in addition to all that uh, I've, I've just said uh, in this talk, much of which is just reviewing what we've already been through, we start to see we need to consider and differentiate in our inquiry, if we're going to in inquire into something called desire, then there's a differentiation uh, to be made, there's differentiations to be made between desire acted on, or desire repressed, or desire, quote, let go of, 
or desire not noticed, hmm? or uh, desire whose energy is open to, but in relation to a deeper um, object, if you like, if we use that word, as we did in the opening to the deeper current of desire practice. We need to differentiate the movement of what we were calling pothos and that kind of infinite longing as something, uh, you say, spiritual or soul-making. The kind of desire when we realize, in relation to what we said uh, a few minutes ago, desire when it's realized to be already consummated in hierophanic time in the imaginal realm. Desire seen as empty. All these differentiations, desire seen as divine influx, as we as we talked about, desire regarded as defilement or problem or sin in, in other language. Desire regarded as or assumed to be originating in lack, whether that's an emotional lack or uh, an intuition of the uh, existential lack of a solid self. Some people explain the Dharma that way, that actually we have a suspicion uh, or an intuition or occasional glimpses that we lack a solid self, and based on that we try and solidify a sense of self, as if getting things and getting involved with desire will kind of shore that up. It's based on this uh, intuited uh, sense of existential lack, lacking a solid self. Uh, or desire assumed to be originating in uh, the again the existential intuition or, or of impermanence of all things, the sense of the impermanence of all things. That, that's why I just everything's impermanent. So there's a kind of hunger there, or desire regarded as an avoidance strategy, avoiding grief feelings or or these feelings of lack can't handle the impermanence, can't handle the lack of a solid self or whatever. So it's interesting, we, as usual, assume something to be findable as that thing. There are things and they're findable, they're obvious what they are. So we assume desire is findable as something, a mental event, if you like, a momentarily, a momentarily arising quality, an inclination, a factor in the process of the chitta, whatever language you want to use. There is this thing called desire. There it was, right there, in that micro thing there, in the process of the chitta. But actually, uh, it's, desire is inseparable from all kinds of other factors. It's actually inseparable. I cannot find this thing uh, called desire in itself. Not just inseparable from uh, the thoughts and actions that follow from it or um, are imagined in pursuit of the desired, but also uh, at a much more subtle level, the very conceivings of an object desired, or objects in general, 
inseparable from that, inseparable from time view, time sense, self view, world view, philosophical system, and even unconscious philosophical systems, which actually most philosophical views and systems are. They're just kind of habitual views about what's real and what the world involves, etc. So, in a person's life, and in any instance, um, or any moment, <clears throat> the relationship with desire, and the, uh, the conception or view of it, conscious or unconscious, the relationship with it, and the conception or view of it, con- view of desire, conscious or unconscious, in other words, whether we're conscious or unconscious of the conceptual view, um, these are woven into a whole view and sense of existence and cosmology. You understand? So, wrapped up in the whole thing, it's implicit in what we've been saying all through the retreat, um, the, the relationship with desire and the whole view of desire are woven into a whole uh, view and sense of existence and cosmology. So if it's a flat world, this is it. If there's uh, an assumption, there's no real meaning or purpose to existence. So it's just maximize the pleasure. The view of heaven and hell, reward, punishment, sin, or the view that this uh, we need to transcend this world. That's the Pali Canon, sort of transcendental thrust and, and uh, achieve an ending of rebirth. All, all these, and, and much more subtle ones, are, are kind of woven in to uh, our relationship with desire. So that's woven in, that informs our relationship with desire. All these assumptions about... Um, Objects, things, time, self-view, worldview, philosophical systems that informs and shapes the relationship with desire. And uh, similarly, the relationship with desire and the conceiving of desire, any desire, or desire in general, both, will make a big difference. So the, again, the, the causality is both ways. The very ways we conceive a desire will make a big difference, not just to the unfolding of that desire and the actions uh, that it impels or it doesn't impel in the world, but also to the view and the sense of self, other, cosmos, and desire too. How I conceive of desire makes a big difference to all of that. The very view and sense of self, other, world, cosmos and desire. So I'm just drawing out uh, what we've perhaps just alluded to here uh, over the days. So we said, what is desire? Well, uh, on one level we can define it. Of course, on another level it's an unfindable element. I can't find it. I can't find it separate from all this other stuff. It's inextricably interwoven and linked with all that. It's unfindable. 
And yet, amazingly, we can still un inquire into unfindable things, and we can still talk of the alchemy of this unfindable element, the alchemy of um, elements, as the alchemists used to talk about different elements, mercury and this and that. Unlike the alchemists who used to talk about purifying uh, this or that element, <coughs> uh, it's not possible to have pure desire, a desire, just desire in itself, as a, some kind of isolated um, thing. Uh, it can't reduce this complex, uh, interwoven uh, mass of existence, can't really reduce it down to its basic elements and separate them. But still, we can talk about the alchemy of those elements and the alchemy of desire. I can't remember if I've already said this, or it's hopefully anyway obvious by now if I haven't said it. But that phrase, the alchemy of desire, that we were using um, as a double meaning, right? So we're talking about the transformation of greed and craving, what we were calling greed and craving, into eros and into the uh, eros-psyche-logos dynamic being liberated into the liberation of the eros-psyche-logos dynamic soul-making movement the transformation of greed and craving into eros and the eros-psyche-logos movement in other words uh, the transformation of a desire that's neither freeing nor soul-making into a kind of desire called eros um, that is uh, more freeing and more soul-making. So that's the first meaning of alchemy of desire. And the second meaning, which it means at the same time, is that uh, the possibility that desire, when it, it uh, manifests as eros, and that eros is allowed to stimulate uh, and uh, galvanize the eros-psychologos dynamic, when neither eros, nor psyche, nor logos are blocked or cramped in some way or another, then that kind of desire, that kind of eros, and the eros-psyche-logos dynamic will lead to uh, a transubstantiation, a sense of perception of uh, the transubstantiation of other self-world and eros itself. There is an alchemy, if you like, of everything, of existence, of the whole cosmos. Transubstantiated how? Given these imaginal dimensions and depths and divinity and sacredness and beauty and all of that. So, on one level, we can't find it. On one level, we can delineate it, make these delineations. On another level, we can't find it desire, and yet we can still talk about and practice this alchemy of desire, and all the beauty uh, and the soul-making that comes out of that. And we said before, knowing the emptiness Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.